You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. All right, so if you would turn in your Bibles to John 14, I'm going to read our text, and then we'll jump right in. John 14, verses 1 through 14. So if you're newer to the Bible, this would be about two-thirds of the way through, and you can look for the big word John there. Uh, when we say John 14, 1 through 14, 14 is the big number, that's the chapter, and then your Bible is divided up with little numbers, so just look for the very beginning of the big word 14 there, and um, we'll look at those first 14 verses. So um, here we go, let me read it, and then we'll jump in. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and, I, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father? Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So it's not very often that you know that the, one of the most impactful days of your life is coming. Sometimes they come surprisingly to us, but when it comes to like one of those life-altering days in your, in your life, um, your wedding day is one that's actually set on the calendar. And uh, when I think about significant days... Um, July 16th of 2005 was a big one for me. That was the day that Bree and I got married. And um, so we got engaged and we were looking forward to this. And it's a weighty decision. Like this is one of those days that's going to mark the rest of your life for good or for bad, right? It's just one of those big days. And it's one of those days where you know it's coming. Like it's on the calendar. You're ready to go. We knew it was coming nine months ahead of time. And the day of our wedding, we were setting up. We were getting things ready. We had a 5 p.m. wedding went and golfed with a bunch of my buddies, and then we came back, and everyone was busy in the afternoon from about 2 till about 4 when people started to show up. Everybody had stuff to do, and I was just kind of left alone with my thoughts. I was just sitting there, and I was thinking about, and for, I think, not necessarily for the first time, i got to be careful about what I say. My wife's not even in here, but, so, anyway. So, she, I had just a, like an hour, hour and a half where I was just by myself, and the weightiness of this day just really landed on me. It wasn't that I was, didn't want to marry Bree. It was just like, man, things are never going to quite be the same again, right? This is going to be one of those days that will mark my life forever. This is one of the top three, maybe, maybe even more than that, significant days of my life. And just the weightiness of that really overwhelmed me. And, um, and I had just a, a bunch of different emotions. And I don't know about you, but if you think about some of the most impactful days that you've ever had, sometimes you've seen them coming, and sometimes you haven't seen them coming. And what we have in John chapter 14 is Jesus is going to give some comfort to people, uh, to to his disciples, um, on the most significant day of their lives. Like they're about to walk into the most disorienting, the most intense day of their life that will mark them for the rest of their lives. In fact, this is going to be the most significant 48, 72 hours in human history, and he's preparing his disciples for this. In John 13, we saw last week that Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room and he washes their feet, which would have been very unnerving and strange. Usually it's the lowest person in the room who's supposed to wash the feet. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the one who washes their feet. And you can see that in chapter 13, 
John, or, or uh, the, the disciples, and specifically Peter, feel a little bit like kind of unnerved about Jesus' service of them. And Jesus has this, this meal with them, this Passover meal with them. He totally reorients their whole understanding of the Passover. He totally reorients and he establishes this new covenant. John doesn't talk a lot about the institution of the Lord's Supper, but I do think that it's in the background here. And, um, and, and we need to understand that Jesus is reaching the end of his public ministry, and now he is literally hours away from his arrest, from his crucifixion, and his burial and his resurrection. He is literally hours away, and he is trying to impress in on his disciples what all is, is going to take place here. And um, what's uh, Luke 22 describes some other things that happened in that upper room. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this for you. But Jesus essentially takes the Passover story and says, this is about me and this is a new covenant that I'm going to be establishing with you with my own blood, which would have been just like, what is he talking about, right? A new covenant in his blood, like he's, he's, he's rearranging the Jewish story and saying it all is about me and I'm about to establish a new covenant. This is a very intense day. This is a very intense moment. Luke 22 says this. When the hour came, he reclined at table. This is Luke 22. He reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus saw this coming. Man, I have so looked forward to this day, this moment, before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup... And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay? And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This would have been just totally unnerving, strange that Jesus is doing this. No sooner, so Jesus is entering into a covenant with his people, a little bit like a marriage covenant, right? Like Jesus is going, this is, you are entering into a new covenant that I am creating for my people, and you guys get a front row seat. You get to be the first ones to experience this. But here's what's crazy, is that no sooner does he enter into this covenant with them, that's a fulfillment of all of Israel's history. But he also immediately turns around and predicts that they're going to fail. They're going to fail. Like immediately, right after establishing this sweet covenant, he tells them how they're going to fail in just the next few hours. This is kind of awkward. This sweet covenant, Jesus has done these things, this new command I give you, love as I have loved others, or love as I have loved you. Um, all people will know that you're my disciples by your love. And by the way, there's a betrayer here, there is a uh, deserter here, and he immediately talks about how they're going to fail. They're going to fail him. They're going to let him down. So if you can just imagine, <laughs> if you can just imagine on your wedding day, you've taken your vows and then you immediately go, I know, I know you're going to, I know you're going to desert me tonight. I know you're going to fail me tonight. And yet he still, he still is going to make promises to them, what I would say is covenant promises to them, in John 14, 1 through 14. So even in the very face of their impending failure, he's the kind of Jesus who still makes a promise to them. On the very night that he has established this covenant with them, they're going to fail. John 13, 33 says this, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said, so the Jews, so I now say to you, I am going where you cannot come. That would have been a bit strange. Jesus is going to go somewhere they can't go. Simon Peter, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterward. Jesus said, or Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay, lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And earlier in, verse cha in, in chapter 13, verse 21, he was troubled in spirit. He said, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. 
So just think about this for a moment, what this would have been like. You've just had this super intense meal with Jesus where he's established this new covenant. The kingdom's going to come. It's going to come before he's able to take another drink. Like it's, it's going to happen. And then he says, oh, and by the way, you're going to betray me. You can't go with me. And, uh, and, and you're going to fail me. That would have been kind of a tough thing to understand. So they're about to experience the worst 24 hours of their life, right? The most significant event in their lives. And Jesus says he's leaving. There's a betrayer. Someone will deny him. And nothing will ever be the same as it was before. So I just set that context. It just gets you to understand, like, the context in which these promises are made. Like, this is an unsettling few hours with Jesus. And then you come to chapter 14, verse 1, and look at the very first words Jesus says to them after dropping this bomb on them, just totally uh, unsettling them. Let not your hearts be troubled. And we have promise number one. In the context of all this craziness, Jesus is saying, I know you're not going to be able to keep your end of the deal here, but I'm going to make a promise to you that I am preparing a place for you. Verses 1 through 3. In this unsettling moment of uncertainty, in some ways the worst hours of your life are just about to hit you, and Jesus gives them covenant promises. Promise number one, I am preparing a place for you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be with me also. So Jesus prepares a place for them. And he uses the plural, he's saying, y'all. I'm preparing a place for y'all. The Father's house is not like a hotel that you kind of just pass through. It's a home, right? It's a home where you belong, and there's plenty of room, right? There's many places. There's plenty of room for all of God's children. We're not going to all just be packed in on each other because God didn't anticipate so many. He's making a place for us. And Jesus is personally going and preparing that place. And he's going to come back to get us. He's going to come back to get his people. And notice what defines the place. And if, you, if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself. What makes the Father's house so wonderful is that God is there and Jesus is there. In some sense, Jesus is the dwelling place. He is the one. To be with him is to be with the Father. I am your room in the Father's house. And I am not yet prepared to receive you, so I must die, I must rise, because in doing so, I'm preparing a place for you. I must be glorified, I must intercede for you. And when I have done that, then I will come and take you to myself. I'm going to come and get you. So on the worst day of their lives, on the most unsettling news they've ever heard, they have a promise from Jesus that there is a place for them. And I think this tells us something, that we were made to be in a physical place with God. That's what we were made for, was to be in the place with God. And we know that in this world, things are all broken and jacked up, and there's things about life that don't work right. We long for a place to call home, don't we? This is why maybe we prefer to go to an Airbnb than the Motel 6, right? Because we want to be in a home. We want to go home. And we have the kind of Savior that isn't just putting together some little tent in the backyard for us to rough it. He's making a place for us with the Father. There is a home for us being prepared for, by Jesus. Promise number two in verses four through six. I am making a way for you. So that's great if there's a place, but if you don't know how to get there, what good is that, right? What good is it to have a place prepared for you, but you have no idea how to get there, no ability to get there, and so Jesus goes ahead and opens the door in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going, which prompts a question by Thomas. Thomas is good at asking questions, which, by the way, at the end of our message today, we'll have a time for questions. I'm not going to get into everything in this message, so feel free to throw some questions out after the message. But Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus' second promise is not just that he's preparing a place for his people, and that place is with him, 
but he's also going to be the way to the place. He's going to be the road home to the Father. It doesn't do a lot of good to have a place if you can't get there, and Jesus says, you can get there. And I'm telling you, here's how you get there. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in that, he's implicitly telling us that we couldn't get to the Father on our own. We can't good our way to God. We can't religious-size ourselves to God, right? We have to get there through Jesus. So Jesus reveals the way to the Father, and we find out in this passage Jesus actually is the way to the Father. Lots of religions show you a way, uh, a, a pathway, pillars, whatever, like do the things and you'll get the stuff, you know, follow the footsteps and you'll get there. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am the way. The way is not, the way is not a set of steps. The way is not a process. The way is not a religious tenets. He's saying the way is a person. And by entering into this person, you have the way. You're on the way. So, in other words, I go to prepare a place for you, and as I go, to be, I also become the way that you get there, and I am the truth, I am the body of content, the set of facts that if you grapple onto, if you hold on to these, you will be on the way, and that way leads to life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's a progression there of going, I am the way by being the truth about God and the life of God. And so it's a package deal. When you trust in Jesus, you are on the way to the eternal place with God, and you are embracing the truth of God. He's not lying to you. You have the truth, and that truth will lead to eternal life. So Jesus really is the perfect package deal. So here's what I want you to think about. We all know that you are far from home with God and need someone to come show you the way home. That's the human condition. Jesus doesn't just show you the way, which would be very gracious of God to show us the path up the mountain. But Jesus actually becomes the way. He becomes the way to God by being the truth that leads to life. The way is a person, not a process. Not just a set of religious duties. The truth is a person. The life is a person. So we don't have to try to cram our heads full of things to try to say all the right stuff at the right time. Because the truth isn't just a set of facts we need to memorize. It's a person that we know, right? And so Jesus is totally blowing our minds here in understanding how we get ourselves in right relationship with God and to the place of God is that he's going to do it all for us. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And then promise number three in verses 7 through 11. Jesus gets a little snarky here. He says, if you had known me, you would know, you would have known my father's my father also, but now you do not know and have not and have seen him. So, so he says, you know the way, and then he kind of comes back and he's like, okay, I, I get it. You you kind of know, but you don't really know. Like you're kind of in this foggy ground, and so um, maybe snarky is too hard a word to say this. But Philip asks a question, or he makes a statement. He says, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and he's confirming that Jesus is like, you don't quite get it yet. You know the way, but you haven't quite got it figured out yet. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still not know me, Philip? If you read the Gospel of John, this is like almost on every page where Jesus is like, I and the Father are one. I am, I am, I am, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the, I am the water, I am the, I'm, you know, all these different things. And Philip still is like, okay, show us, show us the Father. And he's like, I've, I've been the I am the whole time, right? So Philip's still trying to figure this out. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is, this is pretty profound. God the Father, Yahweh, is made visible through Jesus. If you know me, I am so much united with the Father, so much submitted to the Father, that to see me is the essential equivalent to see the Father. If you want to know what would make God mad, you look at what, Jesus, what makes Jesus mad. If you want to know what stirs Jesus' heart up with compassion, 
If you, if you want to know what God the Father is like, what his reaction to things is, what he would say in any given moment, you can look at Jesus. This is so cool, is that you can read the gospel message and know, or the gospels and know God. You can know how he responds to someone who is a repenting, broken sinner. Jesus has unending compassion for the broken sinner. For the religious hypocrite that's kind of beating everybody up with religion, Jesus has zero tolerance for that, right? So if you want to know how the Father feels about you, if you want to know how the Father feels about others, then you can look at Jesus. And so Philip is going, show us the Father, that would be enough for us, which is true. Seeing the Father is really what satisfies our souls. That's what our hearts are longing for, is the glory of the Father. And Jesus is saying, he's looking you in the eyeballs right now. I and the Father are one. Philip, don't you get it? So there's a little bit of exasperation in Jesus, but there's also this kindness of going, hey, Philip, Philip, look, look, you've seen him. Open your eyes, look, you've seen him. And so we see this promise three, I'm revealing the Father to you. Jesus shows the Father to you. Jesus is the Father shown to you. And here's the reality, is that in our natural human state, we're spiritual orphans. Our relationship with Father God has been broken. And we feel it, right? Like, what, you're, what are you supposed to get from a father? Identity, right? Especially in biblical times, the father would name the children, and that would kind of set the course of their life. Um, and identity, protection, security, leadership, inheritance, nurture, all of those things we're made to get from a father. And I know, I know in this room, there has been a wide experience of fatherhood. Like fatherhood carries a lot of baggage for a lot of us. For some of us, it's been good. We've had fathers who have been largely good. And so we think about our fathers and the identity we receive from them, the security, the protection. And then to call God father is not a hard thing for us. But there's a lot of us who the word father carries a really bad image. Our fathers have been deeply disappointing and damaging. And so that's almost like the negative, the photo negative of God, in that the brokenness and failures of your own father are actually and can be used by Jesus to make you long that much more for a real father. What you didn't get from your father, there is a father in heaven who will give you that. Does that make sense? Identity, protection, security, leadership, inheritance. I think Philip is getting at, hey, we want to see God. We want to see the Father. We want to know. If we could see him, we would, be, we would be satisfied. And Jesus is like, look at me, and you'll see the Father. And you will get what you were always intended to get from your heavenly Father. So I just want you all to know that regardless of what your Father was like, there is a true heavenly Father who does and will you a identity his child he will adopt you he will adopt you my wife and I are in the process of adopting a little girl from Haiti and it just kind of it's just it kind of explodes my heart to think about like someone who doesn't have a father doesn't have an inheritance doesn't have those things at some point we're going to come bursting through the door and it's going to be super disorienting and weird and hard and all that stuff but uh, there is going to be immediately this bringing into uh, into a home. And so the Father has a place for you, for you to get there, and He will be your Father. He will give you an, an identity, a pr protection, security, leadership, inheritance. What a beautiful promise Jesus is saying to these fumbling, confused, dazed disciples, which brings us to promise number four in verses 12 through 14. This might be the most confusing couple of verses in the whole text. It's sweet, and I don't know how to explain all of it, because, um, it, it, but it's, it's, it's awesome. So here we go. I am continuing greater works through you. Covenant promise number four, I am continuing greater works through you. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So this is, this is amazing. So check this out. Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, when Jesus is saying truly, truly, 
He's wanting you to really understand, like, hey, it's not like he was lying at other times, and now he's like, okay, now I'm going to tell you the real deal. He's like, he's like saying, hey, this is a life-changing truth. This is something your rabbi is about to say to you that you do not want to forget. Like, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So the fact that, well, just think about, think about all the great works Jesus did, even in the Gospel of John, right? Turned water into wine. That's pretty cool. That'd be helpful at a party, right? He healed uh, uh, a, a, a kid uh, from, from a distance just because his dad asked. He multiplied a bunch of food in, uh, in the field to feed 5,000 people. Um, he has healed people. He has done all this cool stuff. He's walked on water. He has raised somebody from the dead. And then Jesus has the audacity to go, hey, because I'm going to the Father, I am going to do even greater things through you. And I don't think what that means is that we're going to be able to do something greater than the work of the cross and the resurrection. I don't think that greater in terms of, like, significance. I don't think that's what he means. I think it means at least in part that it's going to be greater in terms of um, spread scope in that his disciples are going to go all around the world and they're going to do amazing things and they're going to do a larger quantity, what Jesus could do in just one location um, for three years. He's now going to, through these disciples over the next centuries, do many things. I think it's that. But it's also, I think, that because he's going to the Father, he's going to send the Spirit. And through the Spirit, he is going to draw people to himself. Because remember, in the Gospel of John, the point of the works, the point of the signs, was to show people that Jesus was the Savior. And now through his people, instead of Jesus being in just one location on the earth, he's now by his spirit going to be present in all who believe in him. And so now you're going to have all these kinds of works all around the world that are going to give testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Savior. Because the point of the signs in the Gospel of John was to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, and now we get to participate in that. The way we live our lives, the things we do, are now going to draw Jesus, draw people to Jesus and persuade them to believe in him. So I think it means at least that. And what's amazing is that it says whoever believes is going to have this kind of power. So this is not just the apostles. This is not just pastors that get to do great works for God. Ordinary Christians. Whoever, I love just the, the flattening out of this. Whoever believes in me. And then the certainty of it will also do the works. So if you believe in Christ, God is going to use you. God is going to use you and your life and all your screw-ups and all your great things and all the things that you do. Jesus is so powerful that he's going to use those to draw people to himself. So it's not just the, the Christian superstars that get to do the great works. Whoever believes. So if you're believing in Jesus, God is doing a work in you. Christ is doing a work in you. He is going to do greater works through you. In verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So here we go. He's told them that he's about to go someplace that they can't go. He's going to leave them, but somehow he will still be able to hear their prayers. So in a sense, they will still be in relationship with Jesus, even though their earthly interaction with him is going to be different, over. But he still is saying that even after I'm gone, I'll still be able to hear you. That's pretty amazing. Jesus hears, and he says, I'm going to answer your prayers. Whatever you ask, I will do it. This is not like a genie in a bottle kind of thing. This is not kind of like put quarters in the vending machine, get what you want out. He says it's for his glory. For his glory. So I don't think we can take this passage and just say that Jesus has to do what we ask. But to the extent that it'll bring him glory, he loves when we ask for those things. And he's happy to answer them. And he might answer them differently than we expect or we ask. But he loves to glorify himself in the asking, the prayers of his people. So go ahead and pray. Pray to him. So your life, here's the bottom line, your life is meant to bring God glory. And if you believe, your life will bring him glory. That's his promise. 
I'm going to do greater things through you, and I will do what you asked because I hear you and I care about you, and I'm going to answer your prayers. I don't know exactly how that all works and how Jesus keeps all that promise. I'm not smart enough to figure out exactly why he said it that way, but I know that it's meant to be a comfort for us, and it's meant to motivate us to trust him with our asks, with our asking. We can ask anything. He says, whatever you ask, I will hear it, and I will do what glorifies myself. So that's cool. That's super cool that you can bring, you don't have to shoulder all this yourself. Christ is going to do it. So if I believe in him and I ask for things, then it's like way up the pay grade, right? It's way up into the hands of somebody who knows a whole lot better than me. And I asked and now I can entrust it to a God who's going to get it right. Even if I asked wrongly, he's going to get it right. That's encouraging, right? That's encouraging that you don't have to get your prayers exactly right and that you can ask for what you want. And God will sort that kind of stuff out. So I think there's a tendency in us to think that we have to pray these like perfect, godly, like super spiritual prayers all the time. He says, just whatever you ask, I'll sort out what's best. And I promise that if you knew what I knew, you would answer the way I would answer. That's one of the glories of trusting in Jesus and a big God who's sovereign over all things, who's in control of all things, is that he'll get it right. He'll get it right so we can ask. We're not going to screw it up. We're not going to screw up his plan so we can come and we can just ask and we can have the confidence that he made the promise that he's going to do greater works through his people. That's really encouraging. So in these very difficult times, on their worst day ever, getting the worst news ever, Jesus makes them promises. I think we tend to think that God is the kind of God who is just really quick to slam us when we get it wrong. And I think John 14 tells us not. That's not the case. That Jesus comes and goes, don't let your heart be troubled. This day is in my hands. Yes, it's going to be the worst day ever, but it's also going to end up being the best day ever because God is going to reconcile humanity to himself. That's the amazing part of the gospel is the most evil thing in the world. Creation crucifying its good Savior who came to rescue him. And he flips it upside down and goes, I'm going to save you through this. What? You meant for evil, God meant for good. And God just has that ability to take your worst days and flip them and end up in eternity making them the most glorious day. I don't know how he does that, but we have testimony that he does. And if you're trusting in him, you can believe that. So, bottom line, what is, is required of us? So I think you can skip, you can skip uh, one slide ahead. Yeah, you can skip that. I'll come back to that another time. So here's the deal. How do you get in? How do you get in on these promises? What is required of you? Because certainly, like, if Jesus is going to do all of this big stuff, then it's like, okay, well, what's the equivalent? What's, what's the deal? Like, what's our side of it? Well, he's already told them they're not going to keep their side of it, right? He's already told them you're going to betray me. Like, you're, you know, Peter, it's actually going to be a little girl that makes you betray me. Like, you're willing to go to your death now, but in a couple hours, a little girl's going to freak you out, right? Like, we're so wobbly as disciples, and Jesus knows that. And I think that's why he gives us promises. I think he gives us promises because we can't do it. And they produce hope. Promises require faith. They motivate us. Promises motivate us. That's why you go to work, is that you are convinced that the promise your employer made to pay you on the 15th is going to happen, right? So also, we know that Jesus is going to keep his promises. And so we stay faithful through the hard times. Ultimately, this is just the kind of God he is. He's the kind of God who loves to make promises that only he can keep. And so here's what's asked of us. Believe. And ask. All of these are yours. And all you have to do is just believe they're true. And believe they come from Jesus. Believe six times is what he says here. In verse 1, two times. Believe in God. You all, if you believe in God, just extend that down. Believe also in me. You're theists, like you're monotheists. You got that right. Extend that a little further and just know that I, I am connected to that guy. I'm, extend that faith to me, and you're good. You're good to go. You trust in God, trust in me. In verse 10, 
He says, believe. Uh, I'm trying to find it. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Which is a rhetorical question, meaning you, you know this. You, you believe this. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works. <laughs> like if that's kind of over your head, then just like start a little bit lower. Like you've seen some amazing things. Believe my works. If the whole like, you, the whole Trinity thing of like I and God are one and yet we're separate and I'm submitted to him. But, but he, you know, uh, if that's too much for you, then just believe the works. Just believe what you've seen me do and we'll work that stuff out later, right? Jesus is so gentle and kind to just go, just believe. On the account of works, if, if, if some of the theology is too hard, just start, just start like, do you think Jesus is who he says he is? Just believe on account of the works. And then verse 12, I say to you, whoever believes, whoever. So this is an open invitation to everybody, not just Jewish people, not just religious people, not just church people, not just rich people, anyone. Whoever believes in me will also do the works. So, believe. That's all Jesus is asking to get in on these promises is that you believe. And at the end, ask. Just ask whatever you want, and I'll sort that out. Trust me. Believe and ask. Is that not the most wonderful news in the world, that that's the God who exists? That that's the God who's got his hands on the controls? that that's the God who's preparing a place for us, that that God is so aware of how weak and fragile we are that he doesn't just create like a staircase to him. He's like, I descend the staircase and I carry your sorry self up to me to be with me. And I'm not going to waste your life on the earth. So I think there's some Christians that are just waiting for heaven, like this world's going to burn, let's just sit and just not try to get too corrupted. And it's like, no, like you were made to do great works and you can ask for things and I'm going to actually use you in the world and then bonus, take you to the reward in heaven, right? So that means every second of our earthly life, heavenly life, the whole thing is just for his glory and all of the promises are for the whole thing, right? So don't let your hearts be troubled. Whatever you're facing today, whatever kind of hardships might be in the future, you have a God who's made four clear promises to you at least in John 14 and all he's asking is for you to believe him believe and ask for what you want so let's go to him in prayer oh God we come before you and well there's so many uh, so much <laughs> so much in this passage that uh, could be go, could go so many different directions but Lord I think just the simple truths are that you are the kind of savior who comes And even in the midst of these disciples, horrific failure on the day when they most should kind of step up to the plate, that you would make promises to them and that you would comfort them even as you are about to go to the cross. You have the wherewithal and the heart to comfort those who are going to let you down. And Lord, I know that we see ourselves in that. And we thank you that you're the kind of Christ who goes to the cross for his enemies, who picks the disappointments, who, who, who chooses the nobodies, and then is so great that he continues to keep his promises even to fumbling, failing people. Lord, we want to be in on that. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe, to not just believe in God, but believe also in Christ that he is preparing a place for all who trust in him, that he is himself the way, the truth, and the life, that to see him, to know him, to read about him is to know the Father, to know God, and to know that our lives won't be wasted, even the hard things. You will do great works through us, and you will answer our prayers for your glory. Lord, I pray that that would stir something something deep in us, that we can't even fully explain with our minds. Lord, there would just be something going on in our hearts that we uh, are drawn to you. Lord, help us to know that this is what our hearts long for, and I pray that we would find it and feel it in a relationship with Jesus. So help us to believe and to ask, even in this moment. We pray that as we sing this next song, Lord, that that it would be for us a, a, a believing and an asking, even as we sing this song together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
All right, well, we just want to take a few minutes and, and just open it up for any questions. Um, I love the opportunity just to respond to whatever it is that is on your mind. And um, I don't know if any texts will come in. People can text in questions if they want. Hunter has my phone there. So if anything pops up, you can ask this. But the point of this is that we just always want to be a place where questions are welcome, and we will always take you seriously no matter what you think of the question. And so we want that to be a part of our culture is that none of us have got this totally figured out. But like we looked at, you don't have to have it all figured out. That's the good news of the, of the gospel is that Jesus is willing to keep his promises even to people who don't always get it, right? So um, what do you have, Justin? Yeah, so I have a few questions, and then I'll open it up to you guys so you can uh, chime in so, or be thinking of questions. Um, my first question is, and I think that this everyone might be wondering, uh, verse 13 talks about Jesus asking in his name. Yeah. And, you know, so why do we ask stuff and then conclude our prayers in Jesus' name? And is that like, if we don't do that, does that mean like the prayer is invalid? Yes. Okay. No. <laughs> it's like the little like tagline at the end that gets like, it's like the, yeah. the lock in the key. And God's like, I can't hear you. I can't. Okay, now I heard the magic words. It's not that. It's I think it's on the basis of who Jesus is that we bring our request. So we don't bring our request on based on our authority or for our glory. We bring it on the authority of Jesus. Like Jesus has given me permission to bring this to the Father, or and we can actually pray to the Son. I think you can pray to the Spirit. I think you can pray to any of the three Trinity members and know that he hears you. I don't think that's wrong. But I think the idea is that our, our right to present the request is based on what Christ has done for us. So we don't come, uh, it's not necessarily the merit of the request itself, because sometimes we get that wrong. It's not necessarily our own merit. God, you owe me the right to hear me. I think we pray in Jesus' name because that's who has created the access. And mm -hmm. so I think we're acknowledging in that. Unfortunately, I think for a lot of us it just becomes kind of a tagline. But I think we need to remember that the only reason that we even have the privilege of presenting our request is because of Jesus. And so mm -hmm. because of who he is and what he's done, we present this request. There might be more to it than that, but at least to me, I think yeah. that you present in my name, you know, because you belong to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, so, so it's the basis by which we're bringing our request to God and who we want to get the glory. Yeah, so. that's good. My, my second question is in verse 6, uh, when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, this is often a point of mm -hmm. um, probably one of the stickiest points with Christianity uh, for a lot of people, whether coming to Christianity or even for Christians trying to figure out how Jesus relates to all the other things that we might possibly be, believe about how we get to God. Um, yeah. Could you speak to just his claims to being what it seems to be that he's saying the only way? Right. Yeah, I think that's clearly here, and I think that's where people go with this verse a lot is the exclusivity of Jesus. Like he is, you do not get to heaven, you do not get to a right standing with God other than a right relationship with Jesus, depending on the person and work and way of Jesus. So I think that's clearly here, um, but I sometimes wonder if that's a little bit ripped out of its context in mm -hmm. that this is meant to be a, a comfort to disciples, not a stick to hit other people with, right? Now, he is saying that, that he is the only way to God, but it's meant to be a comfort. So I didn't go kind of the apologetic route here, although mm -hmm. I think it's here, because I think in the larger flow of it, it's meant to be a, hey, you're in the right spot, mm -hmm. you're in the right place. And I, I, I don't leave, don't leave mm -hmm. this way. Don't leave me because I am the only way to God. So you're about to desert me tonight, mm. you know, Yeah. but there's a way back. And I think that's what's so sad about Judas is I think Judas tried to pay back the money, tried to pay back his sin and then lost all hope, not realizing that repentance was available. Now, there's a deeper theological <laughs> thing there, but I think Peter, you know, in the same way denies Jesus yeah. in, in a similar way to Judas. But what does Peter do is he runs to the tomb, he jumps out of the boat, he goes back to Jesus because yeah. he knows that there's no way to the Father yeah. except to return back to Jesus, and Jesus is the kind of person who extends forgiveness. So yeah, um, so yeah to answer your question, I think there is an exclusivity claim there. Yeah. But I think in its context, it's not meant to be this gotcha mm -hmm. to bash other people with. I think mm -hmm. it's meant to be a, no, we... 
we, we have something really precious mm -hmm. and let's not let it slip through our fingers. Let's not leave it. Mm -hmm. So okay. my two cents there yeah, could be wrong. Anyone, uh, any questions? Yeah. Sonia. Yeah. Yeah. Shall I repeat it for the... Yeah, you can repeat it for the camera, and then maybe give me a second. Okay. <laughs> so, correct me if I'm wrong. The question is, um, how do you explain to somebody, uh, you know, when you ask for prayer, uh, and you ask for lots of different types of prayer, and, you know, and, and it doesn't seem that God actually answers it. Like, so what do you do now? Is that kind of... How to, how to uh, explain, yeah, yeah that yeah. prayer is still worthwhile even when it seems like God doesn't answer. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a few things. One is we're, we're told to ask. So in some ways it's like uh, my boss told me to. I mean, in some ways it's like, I don't know, I don't always feel like praying, but I was told to, and usually after praying I'm glad I did. I usually don't regret, man, I wish I hadn't prayed. Um, so I think there's part of that is that we're called to do that. There's the, I think there's the relational side of it. And I actually think that's part of what Jesus is getting at. Is he's just told them he's going to leave them. It's like, oh, wait, you're supposed to bring this kingdom of God thing. Like, oh, well, I'll still be present with you in a way. And I'm going to hear you. And I'm going to mm -hmm. work in you and among you. So mm -hmm. I think there's the relational component mm -hmm. of I, I know Jesus and mm -hmm. I talk to him. And I want to mm -hmm. talk to him. And you share the things that are on your hearts with your friends. You mm -hmm. share what's going on. You know, and so I think there's the relational part. And then I think there's also the, I think he can do something. Mm -hmm. he, he promised to answer me. He didn't promise me any specific answer. And, and so I'm going to kind of trust him. And so um, how you get someone who doesn't believe in all that to believe that, I don't know. But I think for me, those kind of three things of like, well, he told me to. And I'm, I don't know, I, I do what he says. And then, yeah, just those, I think those three mm -hmm. things. The, yeah. The relational component, I talk to him because I know him, and then I actually think he could do something. Mm -hmm. And I've started praying a little bit more boldly myself in that um, he does say ask. And so I think it's totally fine, and even to reason with God, to go, God, I think you would be glorified in curing me of this cancer. I think that would be a great idea, God. Mm -hmm. But I, I leave that in your hands. Like, so... I've gotten to where, like, I think sometimes in our prayers we sort of caveat it. If it be your will, then whatever. I think that's a good instinct, but I also think it's okay to just go, and I think we see that in Scripture, God, defeat my enemies, please. Mm -hmm. That's in the Psalms without a kind of a hedging our bets. And mm -hmm. so I think that we can pray bold prayers and, and even reason with God. God, I think you would be glorified in answering it this way. Mm -hmm. Amen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So... Yeah, you gotta make sure you get that yeah. in there. So, I don't know. So, I think I think that's at least a place to start. There might be others, and I think depending on the person, it might what their experience is. Sometimes people have have really been like they really prayed hard for something, and it didn't happen, and so they've got this hurt. Mm -hmm. yeah. In which case, I think yeah, there might be other reasons or other ways to go around it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think that one of the things is that one of the things that's helpful about scripture is that you see that God has a long a long sense of time, yeah. longer than we do. And now, granted, a lot of the things we do pray for is like, please deal with this thing immediately, like right now. But a lot of the things we pray for are often not immediately answerable. So I think that sometimes it has to depend on also the nature of what we're asking for. But you read the Bible and God, sometimes you'll see him answer, give an answer years after or generations later yeah. to some things. So I think that that's another comfort of seeing the big picture of the Bible, too, is knowing that God is way outside of our sense of time, and his response time is yeah. not the same, necessarily. And his, his strategy in chess is a little Yeah, yeah, he plays the long game. He play, yeah, he's doing a little different. Thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was probably one of the most challenging parts of the passage, because that seems so, like, straightforward. Ask whatever, and I will do it. Mm -hmm. 
but it doesn't seem like that's how you do things. And so in what ways is that true, and yet, and yet it doesn't seem to be true? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know if I've got that figured out yet, mm-hmm. but I, I, yeah. I trust him. I mean, so, yeah. yeah. Other questions? I'll go here and then here. Kathy? Yeah. Yeah. I'll repeat the question. You can, yeah. So the question is, um, how much do we pray for something? You know, pray mm-hmm. one time, or do you persist in praying for something, you know, mm-hmm. I guess? I think we're called to persist in prayer. Jesus gives a couple of different parables about the man who's knocking on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night. I need bread. I need bread. I need bread. My kids are in bed. I, I'm not going to get out, you know, like, and he's rewarded for his persistence. So, like, as a parent, I'm like, I hate that. <laughs> Stop asking for a piece of gum, right? Okay. It's not like, ugh. But God's not like that. God's not as impatient as we are. And actually, there's something about the persistence that he actually is glorified in. Like, how long did Hannah pray for a child? She's begging over and over and over again and totally misunderstood in her asking, and yet God was pleased to do that. So, no, I think we should persist, but I think it should be a trusting persist, you know, um, to, to, to hang in there and, like you said, realize he's playing the long game. So I... So hopefully we're checking our hearts in the sense that we're not just getting more and more like kind of bitter at God or, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, more human beings that have. So it's, it's not always a straight line, but yeah. yeah, I think we're to persist to answer your question, mm-hmm. to persist. And God is glorified in the persisting. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll get to heaven, look back and go, oh, OK, I see what you did. But mm-hmm. he doesn't give us he doesn't give us all that now. So I guess. Yeah. So persist, persist in prayer for sure. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Should I repeat? Yeah, this? yeah, for the live stream. Yeah, <laughs> I'll try to. I'll try. So this to is re- Justin's specialty. <laughs> I'll ch- try to repeat. It's taking a paragraph and making a sentence. <laughs> yeah. So the the question is, what do you do with the person, kind of like Thomas, uh, who he he sort of you know he's with Jesus, he's obviously a disciple, but then and Jesus does all this amazing stuff, but even Thomas, after everyone's saying, hey, he's risen, still says, I need to. I need to see it. You know, I need to touch. What about the kind of that person that wants to believe but is struggling to believe? Is that like more or less the gospel seems to have everything that they're hoping, looking for, and it seems believable, but they have there's like that kind of last sort of bit to really t- latch on. Is this kind of from head to heart? Like, okay, I'm, I'm persuaded, but I, I don't believe. Similar? Oh, that's a good question. I think that, uh, man, I, I think I'd want to just continue to pray for that person because I think only God can open the eyes of someone. And so I think there's kind of that aspect of it of going, uh, I don't know that any argument that I can give is going to just all of a sudden 
click it. There's a spiritual dimension there that I think is part of it. And then I think that, you know, I wonder if part of the greater works is in light of John 13, by your love people will know you're my disciples. I kind of wonder if it isn't the, the church, the church community that sort of makes Jesus tangible. Like I can put my hand in his side in a sense that I see a people that are his body and that sort of tactileness is part of our responsibilities to help make Jesus kind of tactile. Um, in terms of getting them to just believe there's a God, I mean, there's people that would try to argue that, and I think there's maybe a place for giving those reasons and stuff, but I think unless God kind of gives the faith and sort of opens the eyes there, you know, we're sort of limited in what we can get, mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. folks to do, get folks to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, trying to wrap that up really well. I, I, think, I think our lives give a, a good apologetic to that, and I think that's how Jesus has made real it. It's better that I go away because I'm going to send the Spirit, and you're going to be my body, you're going to be my people, and, um, mm-hmm. and I think people have to kind of wrestle mm-hmm. their way there. So mm-hmm. I don't feel like it, I gave you a great answer there, but it, I, I think mean, engaging I, in conversation and just continuing to try to help, help resolve what mm-hmm. we can. It, it seems that part of the... That you would encourage someone to kind of put themselves in the place where that belief would be opened up, and I would say, like, in being sure connected to the body, Christ's body, hearing Christ's words preached, you know, being in the Word. Um, One of my favorite quotes is Calvin says that the chief exercise of faith is prayer. I think with a person like that, I'd say just start praying, like, not because you're trying to trick your mind into suddenly believing it, but I think actually if you if you already really want you're there pray and I think that the Lord grants faith you know the father who says to Christ I believe help my unbelief right I think is a great prayer that you can encourage somebody yeah who's leaning leaning but can't quite because I think that if that's really there already then it will happen yeah I, I think like if that's anybody kind of in the room today like you're just like okay I, I get all this and I'm just right at that spot uh, that he talked about there. Um, maybe just do the mental exercise of going, okay, what if there is a God? How does this play out? And does this ultimately provide better answers to the world's questions? So, so even, even the hypothetical thing might all of a sudden go, oh, wait a minute. Like a God and how he works through the scriptures actually clicks into place a little bit better than what I'm currently grasping. So that could be a way to just at least be honest about the, like, okay, this Christianity thing, what if I go ahead and kind of put myself in the posture of going, okay, let's click this in, and then go, oh. And then I would hope that maybe just doing that exercise, you'd at least honestly be dealing with Christianity. And then if you toss it, then you toss it, you know. But at least if you're dealing honestly in that regard, you might find that, oh, okay, these people aren't crazy. This actually does provide good answers to the to the world's problems and a really compelling solution that that actually maybe checks out so mm-hmm. so i would just encourage you like if you're in that spot like just mm-hmm. entertain the idea of like okay does this fit does this match reality and and then kind of go from there and i think a good faithful christian that can kind of bat things around with you could be really helpful mm-hmm. so anyone else yes Braden. yeah Yep. Okay, by going to the Father, I think he means his glorification. So he's about to die on the cross, be buried. He's going to resurrect, hang out with his disciples for 40 days. He's going to go to the Father, and then he's going to send his spirit. And so somehow, and I don't know how the Trinity worked this out, but Jesus had to go to the Father in order for the spirit to come. Okay, And so he's saying, I am now going to put divine power within you. So instead of Jesus beside you doing cool things that you get to be a part of, in a sense, by believing in Jesus, he's going to put that divine power within us to be able to do even greater works. So he says, because I'm going to the Father, I'm going to send the Spirit, and I'm going to do work through my Spirit in you, which is super cool. Having Jesus beside you is awesome. 
having Jesus like commune with you by the Spirit, that's ten times better, right? So that's, I think, the idea there is that because I'm going to the Father, I'm going to be able to do greater works because I'm going to be in you. And so, like, if you can just imagine going to school every day, well, you're homeschooled, so it wouldn't be a far drive, but you, having Jesus with you to just kind of help you through things every day, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Like, Jesus, what do you think? What do you think about this, you know? Well, he's saying it's actually better because I actually have, I've put the Holy Spirit within you, and so I'm kind of at the control centers. Instead of me advising you while you're at the control centers, your life is now going to be led from the inside by me, and I'm going to do some amazing things. That's pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. So, yeah. Good. All right. Okay. Well, if you would please stand, and let's just receive our benediction this morning. Hey, thanks for being here, and uh, thanks for um, the masks and the social distancing and all the stuff that the journey's asking us to do. That you know, thanks for accommodating that, and I uh, really appreciate that. And if you want someone to talk to, I'd be happy, and Justin would be happy. There's lots of cool people here to talk to, so don't rush off. And if you have questions about Christianity or God or this church or anything, man, we're an open book. We would love to, to hear and know what's going on. And we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to just pray for you. So um, if there's anything going on in your life, please share that. Don't rush off too quickly. So, all right. Our benediction. 1 Timothy 1.17, a benediction is just a fancy word for good words. So we just want to leave you with a good word from Scripture as you go. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May that be true. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.